Thanks, brother. Morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. My name's Dan. If we haven't met before, I'm the pastor here. And uh, I'm going to give you a tip that'll change your life. All right? You're at your uh-oh, says Nigel. Here we go. Yeah, so my tip is to do with how you can befriend any cat that you happen to meet. Yeah, uh-oh was right. <laughs> so here's a, here's a picture of me with our cat, Charlie. As you can see, we're best friends. And by the way, if you think that, like, me and Sky are obsessed with our cat, just wait till we have our baby. <laughs> we're, like, inside a month now. It's going to be ridiculous. Now, uh, kids, you can see Charlie there up on the screen. And maybe you've met Charlie. Uh, maybe you haven't. Oh, Daisy, I think you've met Charlie before. Uh, now, next time you see Charlie, if you should come over with, with your parents maybe one day for, for lunch... Um, then do you want to be his friend? Would you like to meet Charlie and give him a good pat and, and be a good friend with him? Yes? Yes, says Daisy. Fantastic. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you the tip, okay? Here's what most self-described cat people get wrong, right? They come into the house, they see the cat, and then they're like, oh, my goodness, you have a cat, <laughs> right? And they're staring this cat down and they walk right up to it. And they're like, oh, let me pat you. You're so sweet. You're so cute. And they're getting all in the cat's face. Now, a cat is, is sort of, it's a predator animal, right? It, if you have a cat, it catches birds and mice and all that. But it's also a prey animal. It has things that chase it and hunt it. And so it's always scanning for danger. One of the signs of danger in the animal kingdom is eyeballs, right? If someone is gazing right at you. That's danger times. And so imagine this big gangly looking creature comes up to you, a little cat, and is like, hello, <laughs> and, and walks right into your space. Well, you're going to be freaked out. And so a cat is, is going to walk away or think of you as a threat. Here's what you've got to do instead. All right. You walk into the house, you see the cat, and then here's what you do. You lock eyes, and then you do a big slow blink and look away. <laughs> it feels really dumb. You feel like a total fool, but it works. The proof's in the pudding, okay? I did this with a cat that I met last night and it worked. There you go, right? So the reason is because it's, you're signaling to the cat, I see you, and I'm not interested, and I'm not a threat, all right? It's all in the eyeballs. And so if you do this, you'll become Charlie's favourite person. It was Rob Jenner, by the way, because he just pretended that Charlie didn't exist at all. <laughs> uh, now I think actually it's Graham James, I think is Charlie's favourite person. So there you go. <laughs> um, now, the reason I tell you this tip about uh, eye contact and cats, all of that, uh, is because of the way that this passage begins. So open your Bible to Revelation 2, verse 18. We've been looking at seven churches who receive... Seven letters from Jesus. And so uh, we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 2 this week with the church to Thyatira. And look at how it begins in verse 18 here. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet whose feet are like burnished bronze. There's an artist named Chris Coley 
uh, he's produced a, uh, like a, a sort of comic representation of the book of Revelation. You interested? Here's one of the pictures from his uh, comic, Ray. Yep, thanks. Um, so this is the top scene is when John falls down, the Apostle John who had this vision. He falls down as though dead and Jesus assures him and lifts him up. There's the first scene. The scene down the bottom is Jesus saying, I'll wipe all of your tears away in the new creation. It's pretty evocative. Go and look it up if you can. Chris Coley, K-O-E-L-L-E. I'm going to show you, though, his representation of this verse. Revelation 2, 18. Here it is. Yeah. You're probably feeling a little bit like Charlie right now. Here's danger. Here's a threat. Eyes like blazing fire. You've probably heard the saying, eyes are the window to the soul. What is Jesus revealing about himself here? I think he's revealing that as he comes with eyes like blazing fire, he sees what's happening in his church. He sees even when there is sin in his church. He has feet like burnished bronze. That is to say, he has feet that are strong and ready to march against sin in his church. And if you look in verse 18, it all wraps together in just three words. The words, Son of God. Son of God. It's actually the only time that that phrase is used in the book of Revelation. Jesus is telling us something here. He's saying, I am God. I see what happens in my church. Nothing escapes my notice. And where there is sin, I am coming to deal with it. See, there is a problem in the church at Thyatira. And whatever it is, you can tell it's serious. Now, the church does receive some encouragement. Take a look at verse 19. I know your works. He says, I know your works. As I see you, church in Thyatira, I see something good. I see your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. They're a growing church. Maybe not just numerically, but spiritually. In maturity, love, faith, service, patient endurance when there's persecution. Uh, what is there now is more than what was there at the beginning. Probably an exciting church to be part of, right? Love to be part of a church like this. But Jesus' eyes bore into it and sort of like an X-ray scan. They see something beneath the surface. If you want to put it this way, it's like there's a cancer in this church. And it's not evident on the surface, but, but it's taken root and it's threatening to infect and destroy all the good that is there in the church at Thyatira. What's wrong? What is the problem? Verse 20. We're going to camp out just on this verse, really, for most of this sermon. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. In this verse, I think we can see two problems in the church at Thyatira, two things that Jesus bores in and sees and has come to deal with. We're going to camp out on these two problems. One problem has to do with just one part of the church, a small group in the church. But the other problem has to do with everyone else. 
So no one escapes Jesus' firing line in this passage. Therefore, he has something to say to every single person at the church in Thyatira, but also every single person in his church today. I wonder what it is that Jesus will say to you this morning. But we need God's help. This is going to be big stuff in case you haven't grabbed that already. Uh, So let's pray that he opens our hearts and our minds to whatever he might want to say this morning. Join me in prayer, would you? Lord God, we do come before you and, and we, we want to come as those who, um, as though at the foot of a, a great mountain that we can't possibly overcome, we can't possibly get to the peak of. Here we stand before you, the great God over all creation. And Lord, we ask that you would fit us to see you as you are, to be in awe of your son. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith and the gift of repentance this morning. We recognize that they are gifts from you. And so, Lord, do whatever you need to in our hearts and minds as you assure us of the gospel and your love and as you give us courage to deal with whatever issues there may be that Jesus exposes. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Two problems. Do you want to know the first one? Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> the first problem, here it is, the first problem in Thyatira is compromise. And I feel like a total broken record saying that because we did a whole sermon on this like two weeks ago, didn't we? The church in, uh, where was it? Pergamum. Uh, in fact, Ephesus struggled with a similar problem to this. Really, Jesus could have saved some time by just like CCing all of these churches into the same email, couldn't he? Compromise is such a problem in Jesus' church. It really is. Uh, but, but the question is, what did it look like specifically here in Thyatira? Because, you know, the, the temptation to sin, the temptation to live a divided life, a life not of integrity in worship, but of disintegrated worship, is quite individualised, isn't it? it? It sort of has a different expression depending on the culture in which you're situated. And so here's what's going on in Thyatira, verse 20. It traces back to someone in the church. There is this woman, Jezebel. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now, does that name ring a bell? Jezebel. Tell me something about Jezebel. What do you know about her? Sorry, say again, Rob. King Ahab. Good. Yep. In the book of 1 Kings. What else do we know about Jezebel? Bad news. Yep, definitely. Why was she bad news? Yeah. Immoral and wicked. Do you remember what she did that was immoral and wicked? Yeah, very good. Very good. Thanks, uh, Graham and Knowles. Yeah, she was a Baal worshipper. So the story, in case you're unfamiliar, 1 Kings 16, if you want to look at it in your own time, uh, there's a a king, Ahab, uh, who was the king of Israel at the time. He does a a trade deal with the people of Tyre. And um, part of the deal is he gets the daughter of the king, Jezebel, as his wife. Like women's rights, right? In the ancient world. Fantastic. So he he gets this this queen to marry. Uh, Only she worships Baal, as you guys said. Uh, And so she entices him, the king of Israel, to do the same. And when she becomes queen, she makes Baal worship the national religion of Israel. Uh, In fact, she goes and hunts down all the prophets of God that she can and has them killed. Uh, Elijah is one of those prophets, if you know that, that account as well from the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying here is that there is a Jezebel-like person in the church at Thyatira. Not someone literally named Jezebel properly, 
but someone who's, who's like that person from the Old Testament. Someone who is, they look like they're part of God's people. Probably they've got some influence like Jezebel did in the Old Testament. And yet they're actually set against God and they're set against God's people. They are enticing Christians into compromised worship. Now, how does that happen? Well, much like in the other cities that we've seen, it's hard to be a Christian in Thyatira, and here's why. Uh, got a map here. Uh, this is a great map because it's all really pixelated, and the font is Comic Sans, so it's even better. But Thyatira up in the top there, you can see, is kind of on the route between Pergamum, who we met a couple of weeks ago, big city, and then going down from there, we're going to meet Sardis in a week or two. Uh, and then there's Smyrna, we met them, uh, really big city, one of the, the biggest in Asia. And Ephesus, probably the biggest in Asia Minor. Now, you can notice that Thyatira is on the route between those cities. Okay, uh, What you need to know about them is they're a really small city. They're like the runt of the litter of these seven uh, cities. Uh, they didn't really have much of a claim to fame. But they were on a trade route which meant that they could sort of get some business going between these bigger cities. Uh, now, that, that's basically how they survived, okay? They were on the trade route, they exported stuff. To be a good exporter, of course, you need to have something to export. And so they were essentially a city full of tradies who produced a, a whole lot of different stuff. Uh, bronze workers, uh, iron workers, um, uh, uh, wool workers, linen workers, dyers, tanners, potters, bakers, all that sort of stuff. So if you lived in Thyatira, you were probably a tradie, you were probably producing stuff. Now, it's not like today, and this is where it starts getting hard for Christians, it's not like today where if you're a tradie, you might start at 7, for example, or clock off at 3, all right? And then your, your job is done for the day. Um, it's, it's, if you are part of a trade, it dominates your entire life. Really interesting, actually, because, uh, you know, if you are a bronze smith, for example, then your son also will be a bronze smith and his son and his son. It's like a legacy that gets passed down. Not only that, it's a bit like uh, if you've read The Hunger Games, that, that book that was big a few years ago, um, they, they sort of, they have districts that all produce. So District 12 produces the coal and District whatever produces the, the um, bread and, and so on and so on. That's kind of like what this city's like. Uh, you would have a district that is bronze smiths and a district that is wool workers, and a district that is tanners, and so on and so on. So you live and work with the same people in the same place. Your neighbours are your colleagues. And not only that, they're also like your big social connection. So uh, you would have big bronzesmiths feasts, and big parties, and big activities. You do a soccer gala day together on a Saturday morning, or something like that. This is your whole life, right? If you're a bronzesmith, you're a bronzesmith right down to your toes. Why would that be hard if you were a Christian? Well, the problem is uh, trade activities, your soccer gala day, your feasts, would usually involve something dodgy. For example, you turn up to the bronze smith's feast. There's all this food laid out, ready to eat, smorgasbord. The problem is this food has been sacrificed, as it were, to an idol. It's been sacrificed to a false god. So one of the Roman gods or maybe a god that they've taken as the god of the bronze smiths, what they've said is that they've kind of like, imagine they prayed over it and blessed it and said, this is, this is food sacrificed to the god of the bronze smiths and if you eat it, 
then you are pleasing the God of the bronze smiths and appeasing him so that he'll bless our trade for the next month. Does that make sense? Right? So you go in as a Christian and you're like, do I eat the food? Everyone's going to be thinking that I'm eating it to this false god. That's tough. Even more, as the feast rolls on and people have a few drinks, they then bring out some women. And you can imagine what happens next. So a Christian goes, should I even turn up to these feasts at all? Because of what's going to happen, right? Problem is, if you don't go to the feasts, you're putting everything at risk. Like you're, you're outing yourself as antisocial. You're putting your job at risk. You're putting your social life at risk. You're putting your, your home at risk. From their perspective, you're putting the whole trade at risk because you're not participating and appeasing the gods and so his, the, the god isn't going to bless everything. You're, you're putting your kids' futures at risk, right? Because it's not just your job. They're going to be a bronze smith too and their kids. It's pretty hard. So imagine then with all of this on your mind that you go to church one day and you sit down and next to you is someone named Jezebel. Probably not literally, but you get what I'm saying. Here's the Jezebel. And, and they say to you, hey, I know how hard it is to be a Christian here in Thyatira. I get it. I get it. I've lived here for 30 years. I know what it's like. It doesn't have to be this hard. I want to teach you something that will actually make this a whole lot easier. And you're like, okay, like I'm fine. I'll, I'll give you a hearing. What is it? And Jezebel says, it's okay to compromise. Now, how could someone believe that? It's like saying the earth is flat. <laughs> really? It's okay to compromise as if you believe that. Well, here's the logic, okay? In the ancient world, there was a pretty uh, widespread belief that the body and the soul or spirit are two very, very different things. And the soul or the spirit is like the pure part of you, the good part of you, but the body is like the... It's just going to rot in a grave. Worms are going to eat it. doesn't really matter. Okay? So the soul and the spirit is like the real part of you and the body just doesn't really matter. Do whatever you want with the body. At worst, maybe even the body is evil and we should reject it. But at the very least, it doesn't really matter what you do with it. Now, this is not a Christian teaching, but this was one of the big teachings in the ancient world. And so here's Jezebel and people like her. And what they say is, you can sin in the body. You can do whatever you want with your body. Throw it in the fire. Get it involved with the things of Satan. Doesn't matter because your soul or your spirit is going to remain pure and untouched. You with me? Kind of like a, uh, a put a marshmallow in the fire, right? The, the outside is going to get all burnt and charred, but the inside is going to be all gooey, right? There's the soul. It stays good, but the outside gets burnt. And so the, you should disagree with that, by the way, if you're a Christian, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but not everyone in this church at Thyatira disagrees with that. Some of them are hearing that and they're going, oh, yeah, okay, marshmallow, that's a good illustration. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Okay, so you're, what you're saying to me, Jezebel, is I can go along to these feasts and I can eat the food sacrificed to the idols and I can get involved with the other things that happen at the feasts and so on and so on. I can have my cake and I can eat it too, right? Because what I do in the body doesn't matter. It's, it's really what my soul is involved in. Now, like I've said, that's not biblical. Part of that is because decades earlier, Paul had written to a church in Corinth and he had said this from 1 Corinthians 6.12, uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, right? Sorry, guys in Thyatira, no. 
Uh, in fact, it is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body matters. If you want to read on your own time, 1 Corinthians 6, it's, a, it's a, quite a good little deep dive into the significance of the body. And part of the point of it is that we were bought for a price, right? Uh, God created us with a body and we're going to inhabit a body in the new creation, right? We're not just going to be disembodied spirits floating around. We're going to be in a renewed body. Um, and, and in between, Jesus died on the cross. He gave his body, his life for our bodies and our lives, right? Uh, he, he died to redeem the body as well as the soul or spirit. And what that means is when we trust in Jesus, his body broken for us, bearing our sin, bearing the judgment we deserve, when we trust in Jesus... We are forgiven for the sins we've done in the body and with the soul, but not so that we would do whatever we want with the body. It's that we would now live for the Lord, body and soul. Jesus gave his body, his life, that we would glorify God with our body, our lives. That's the thing that the people in Thyatira are missing. They think they can do whatever they want with their bodies but they bought into something wrong. And it's not a free life. It's not a free life. It's not like, oh, wow, that's a load off. I can just go to the feast now and get involved. That's a compromised life. And the seriousness of that comes through in the verses that follow. Verse 21. This is something to be repented of. Notice that Jesus says, I gave her, that is Jezebel, this woman in the church, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to change. This is something where she's meant to chuck a U-turn. Remember, kids, that's what repentance means, kids. It's chuck a U-turn. It's, it's change direction. I was going this way, and now I'm going this way. I was going towards sin, now I'm going away from sin and towards God. That's what repentance means. This is something to repent of. Verse 24 even calls this stuff that they're doing the so-called deep things of Satan. Do you see that there? Wouldn't you like to know what that means? The so-called deep things of Satan. Maybe your mind goes to occult things or it goes to Harry Potter or something. Now, that's, that's not what's being talked about here in this verse. It's actually very simple. The so-called deep things of Satan here are just divided worship. It's just compromised living. It's where someone says, I can have God and the things that God is against. I can have my cake and eat it too. That's the things of Satan. But we only end up worshipping the enemy when we live that way. And therefore, if Jezebel and these people keep going, it will lead to discipline. Listen to this. From verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, listen up. I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Now, in the Old Testament, Jezebel met with such a fate as this. If you want to read to the end of that account in history, uh, she ended up dying from defenestration. Do you know what that is? It's the big word for getting thrown out a window. Again, I just keep giving you dinner party stories, right? Like your word of the day, defenestration, <laughs> getting thrown out the window. Her servants actually pushed her out of the window, right? 
um, that they sort of turned against her. And she ended up then getting trampled by a horse. And when they found the remains, there was barely any identifying signs of who she was. Right? That was the, the fate of Jezebel, punished by God because of her sin. Um, and so Jesus points back to that. And he says, Thyatira, do you remember what happened to Jezebel? The Lord didn't let her get away with it. Be warned. The same discipline is coming your direction unless you repent. That's what he's saying. And so the warning here for Jezebel is, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Like, she's been a cancer to the church. And so Jesus is now going to respond in kind. He's going to make her sick. Who's doing it? Jesus is. It's confronting. Then go on. Those who follow her. Notice how they're described in verse 22. How are they described? Thank you, Nigel. Yeah, those who commit adultery. They're adulterers. Saw this a couple of weeks ago. When someone says that they're worshipping God but really live for something else, they're cheating on him. They're unfaithful. And what tends to happen when someone's caught cheating? Disaster, right? Uh, at the very least, sometimes it's a, a messy divorce, right? Um, but, but always there's deep pain and suffering. And so Jesus says here, hey, you're, you're cheating on the Lord who created you and saved you. All right, I'm going to throw you into great tribulation, disaster. Who's doing it? Jesus is. That's confronting. Third group, Jezebel's children. Probably not literal, by the way. Probably a, a way of saying, just like adulterers is not literal. Um, it, it's probably a way of saying, these are the people who are so swept up in Jezebel's teaching that they're like little kids just sort of following her around, right? Without even really thinking about it now, they're so caught up in it. And Jesus is saying, be warned because I will strike them dead. Who's doing it? Jesus, confronting, but not without warning. He said to Jezebel, I will give her time to repent. And she didn't. I gave her time. She didn't repent. He's also giving a warning to those who the adulterers and the children here as well. Unless they repent, these things are going to come. There is a chance to turn. Dump the sin, dump the false teaching, turn back to God for forgiveness and help to change in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his hope for him. But if they don't, there are consequences. In fact, physical consequences like sickness, hardship. Even death. Now, that's pretty full on, isn't it? Does God cause physical sickness in people? Could God strike someone dead? That's the claim being made here, isn't it? Now, there are examples of this in the New Testament, just in case we're picking and choosing things here. There's one in 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to come across there with me. 1 Corinthians just after Romans, just after all the Gospels, 1 Corinthians 11. Now, um, you might know this passage uh, as uh, one of the chapters we go to for communion, right? Here's the, the bread and the wine, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Now, on, on either side of that little bit that we often um, quote from about communion and the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> pardon me, is uh, a whole big description of the sin of the Corinthian church. I'm not going to get into all the detail. It takes too long. But just, just trust me, they're in unrepentant sin. Read it yourself later if you want. Um, would someone mind just getting me some water as well? I'm just 
little bit parched. Thanks, guy. Lovely. Um, I want you to zero in on verse 28. Thanks, Sally. Verse 28, 29 talks about um, the, the people in the church at Corinth. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is the body of the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, it seems that they are involved in unrepentant sin here in Corinth, and yet they're going and taking the Lord's Supper as if they're scot-free, as if they're not involved in this sin. What are the consequences of that? Eating and drinking judgment on yourself. What is that judgment? Verse 30 tells us, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Which, by the way, that last bit is not like the sermon's a bit boring and so I'm just nodding off. That's death. That's a metaphor for death in the New Testament. Now, isn't that interesting and confronting? It seems that this unrepentant sin that the church in Corinth is involved in is leading to physical consequences in their life. And that can be true sometimes just in terms of what we might call natural consequences, you know, the, the mechanics of life. If you get drunk all the time, that's a sin. Getting drunk is a sin. If you get drunk all the time, your liver is going to give out at some point, right? You're going to get sick. You're going to feel bad in your body. If you, um, I don't know, overwork and you, you live for your career, you're going to burn out at some point. Your cortisol levels are going to elevate. Your adrenaline's going to go up. You're going to blow out your, your um, adrenaline nose. I don't know, medicine, something like that. Something bad. Thanks, Rob, for that smile. He's a nurse. So that's great. Yeah, something bad will happen in your body from working too hard. You get me? If you look at, at pornography a bunch, then that's going to affect you physically. It's going to affect the, the neural pathways in your mind. It's going to affect your desire. It'll affect you in a whole bunch of ways. It's just natural consequences in the world that God has made, is it not? I mean, he's established a world in which generally patterns of sin lead to patterns of weakness. However, there are also times when the Lord just supernaturally intervenes and immediately disciplines people because of their sin. And he disciplines them in a physical way. Um, Acts 5 has one such example. Ananias and Sapphira, two Christians, they go up to Peter and say, I've sold this property and given all the proceeds of the church, uh, of the, the property to the church, but they've kept some money in their back pocket. Peter says, I know that you've lied because the Holy Spirit told me, and God strikes them both dead there and then. Sometimes that's just what he does. Now, we need to be very, very careful with this, not to reverse the order of the logic. Here's what I mean. We might be tempted to look at sickness or weakness or hardship in our lives and think, well, that's because I must have sinned, right? I've got this chronic illness. <gasps> that's because of that thing that I did in my 20s, right? Um, oh, I'm just, I'm facing all this hardship in my life. I wonder what I did to deserve it. That's the wrong way of thinking. Jesus rejects that way of thinking over and over in the Gospels. Was it this man's sin or his parents that caused him to be born blind? Neither. 
right? But on the other hand, we can kind of work this way, all right? If I look at my life and there is a clear pattern of sinning, right? It's clear as day. And then I also look at my life and I notice that there is an area of weakness or sickness or disaster or something. I've got to, I've got to at least entertain the possibility that maybe, maybe that's something the Lord has caused in my life to get my attention. Maybe. It might be natural cause, right? Go see a doctor. It might be spiritual cause. And God is trying to get your attention. So just, just to make sure this is really clear, if you are going through sickness, hardship, weakness, whatever, right? don't look at that and think, oh, it's because I've sinned in some way. Okay, Don't think that way. But if you can see instead, I do have a pattern of sitting in my life, that's really clear to me, then if you find you're also sick, hardship, weakness, whatever, God might be getting your attention. Now, big topic, really big topic. We've spent like 60 seconds on it. <laughs> okay. Um, in fact, what I'm going to do at the end of this sermon, I might just even ask if you've got questions. So if you've got a question, just write one down now. If there's another passage I could take us to to help us think that through. If not, that's fine. But um, important thing to get through, because to summarize, what's the problem in Thyatira? Well, the first problem, compromise. What's the consequence? Discipline, even physical. What's the alternative? Repentance. Chuck a Yui. Come back and know the forgiveness of Christ who died for that sin that you are currently involved in, but wants you to change. He died that you would glorify God in your body. Is that something you need to hear this morning, friend? Do you need to hear that the compromised Christian life is no life at all? That you need to repent. Because otherwise, the Lord may well come with discipline. He disciplines those that he loves. That's Hebrews 12. A son who is not disciplined is not loved. He loves you. He wants you to change. Is that something you need to hear this morning? You might be thinking, I don't know how to change. Okay. Talk to a brother or sister here that you trust. Talk to me if you want. Is this something you need to hear? Is there something you need to repent of? There's the first problem in Thyatira, compromise. But there is another problem. This one's a little shorter. And it has to do with the rest of the church. There's this group, the Jezebel group, but the rest of the church is involved in something as well. And I want you to see what it is in verse 20. So back over in um, Revelation chapter 2. Verse 20. I have this against you. That you, what? What's it say? Tolerate. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Here's the second problem. Tolerance. It's not just that there's someone teaching dodgy stuff and some people are following her. It's also that the rest of the church is tolerating it. They're looking on, but not doing anything about it. You might have heard of something called the bystander effect before. Uh, if you plug into YouTube, the smoke-filled room, bystander effect, the smoke-filled room, you'll see one such experiment. Uh, it's, it's where a woman comes along and uh, she's been recruited into like a little psychological test study thing. And it's that you would sit in a room and fill out a survey. Now, she's in a room with nine other people in a circle. Um, what she doesn't know is that all other nine people are in on the 
the sort of twist of the study, okay? Like they're all setups, they're plants. Uh, and what happens is she's sitting there filling out her survey when all of a sudden, beep, 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 there's this smoke alarm that goes off next door. And then smoke begins to seep in under the door. Now, it's all fake. The other nine people, they know what's going on and they've been told, don't respond in any way <laughs> to this smoke alarm and the smoke. And so the woman, predictably, like looks up and goes, you know, is anyone else going to... No? Okay. <laughs> Keeps doing her survey. Five minutes go by. Now, the, the, the room by this point is filled with smoke. <laughs> the smoke alarm is still going off. No one's doing a thing. She looks up again. Still nothing. So she gets back to her survey. Ten minutes go by. Twenty minutes until finally she stands up. But not to do something about it. <laughs> she stands up to hand in her survey and leave. <laughs> Now, they completed this, this study 10 different times, 10 different people, all exactly the same. None of them did a thing. And it's actually quite logical if you think about it. If you're one person in a room with a smoke alarm going off and smoke coming in, like, oh, the responsibility is all mine, 100% mine. I've got to do something about it. If you're in a room with nine other people, oh, now the responsibility is 10% mine, right? It's only one-tenth mine. And that's how everyone's thinking, and so it means that really no one's going to do anything about it. When we're in a group, it's easy to tolerate bad things, right? And so in this case, I think that's what's going on in Thyatira. They're being bystanders to sin, the bystander effect at work. Uh, you've got a false teacher claiming to be a prophet. You've got people appeasing pagan gods with their feasts, even committing sexual immorality. The church is filling with smoke, so to speak, but no one's doing a thing about it. And if we're honest, we all find dealing with sin hard, don't we? Talking about it. I'm talking like if, if there is a clear case, think, think of someone, no doubt if you've been a Christian for a while and part of a church for a while, you've known people within said church that have been in a pattern of sin. And we're not talking here that it's like, maybe, maybe not. No, it's obvious, right? Think about such a time in your life. Maybe even you've got an observation like that right now. Did you want to go and talk to that person about their sin? No. Thanks, Carrie ann for your honesty. Absolutely. No, it's hard. At the very least, it's going to be awkward, isn't it? Might lead to conflict. They might call you judgmental. They might say, oh, you're being legalistic. They might fly off the handle. They might accuse you of something. Really hard. I find it hard. However, Jesus says that sin must not be tolerated among his people. There's two different problems in the church here. One of the people doing the compromise, but the other is the people tolerating it. His church is meant to be holy. Not perfect, right? Because we're still on the journey, but, but holy. We're meant to be chasing holiness, repenting of sin, embracing the forgiveness of Christ, but not in such a way that we do whatever we want, in such a way that we keep going forward, struggling, changing, growing. Jesus is utterly committed to that. But here's the good news, okay? And if, if you don't know this principle, I want you to write this down. Whatever God commands, he himself enables. If you have not heard that before, write that down. That will be of great encouragement to you in any spiritual difficult thing you've got to do. Whatever God himself commands, he himself enables. So where God says, 
I will not tolerate sin in my church. You need to go and talk about it. You need to do something about it. There's the command. Will not he himself also enable us to obey that command? Has he not given us the Holy Spirit to be able to grow at keeping Christ's law? Right? One of the ways in which he enables us to obey his commands is by looking at his word and considering how does this help me to obey the Lord Jesus. And I think actually he's embedded here in this passage four principles that help us have hard conversations, do hard things, make hard decisions when it comes to sin. And I want to give you these four principles, okay? You ready for them? This will be of great help to you if you, like me, find these conversations hard to have. So four principles. Here's the first. Whenever we choose to confront a sin issue, we give people time to change. Verse 21, Jesus says, I've given Jezebel, even Jezebel, this cancer in the church, even her, I gave her time to repent. Now, I think that puts confronting sin into perspective for us, doesn't it? The model of Jesus is give people time, give people some space and some grace to respond. So you raise it and then you sort of, Let them try and work this thing out, all right? Now, what I think is good about that, well, firstly, is is it reflects the character of God. Our God is slow to anger, right? There is a line. There is a limit. He will get there if you don't repent, but, but he's slow getting there. There's time, there's patience, there's space, there's grace. One of the things I think that's helpful about this with a hard conversation is that um, we don't have to approach a conversation thinking, if I don't convince this person to change right now, then I've failed. Right? If I don't make them change, then it's all a waste. No. Raise the concern, and then there is space and grace to work it out. How much? Well, that's a question of wisdom, but there should be space and grace, time to change. And that helps us relieve the pressure on ourselves and relieve the pressure on the other person while still keeping the seriousness and the urgency. Yes? There's the first principle. Second principle, also in verse 21. You can't make people's choices for them. Jesus gave Jezebel time to repent, but she was unwilling. She was unwilling. Our responsibility, if we are members of this church, brothers and sisters in covenant with one another, is to raise concerns. Go and raise the concern about sin. Here's what I'm seeing Here's how it makes me feel. I feel concerned. Here's what it makes me think. Might be wrong. But here's what I see going on. That's our responsibility. But we're not responsible for how someone responds. They might fly off the handle. They might ignore you. They might deny what you're saying. They might accuse you of stuff. Yep, okay. The responsibility we have, like in a game of tennis, is to serve the ball. Okay? And then it'll cross the net, and then it's out of our court into their court, at least for the time being. We're not responsible for what happens on the other side of that net. But we are responsible for what happens on this side of the net. I do have to raise the concern. That is my responsibility. But I am not responsible for the choice the other person makes. Again, a freeing, helpful thing that gives us courage to have the hard conversation. Third principle. Verse 22. God's purpose is restoration. God's purpose is restoration. Right? He wants the followers of Jezebel 
to repent. He wants them to repent, right? These things are going to happen unless you repent, he says. That's the hope. It's that they would turn around. Verse 23, he wants the church to know that he's the one who searches minds and hearts. Now, what are they supposed to do with that knowledge? Repent and change. You can't hide anything from Jesus, he's saying. I want the church to know that. So, so just do what's obvious. Since you can't hide, change. That, that's his hope. It's that people would repent. God is not there with a magnifying glass as if you're a little ant and, and he's just waiting for the sun to come out so that he can burn you up and set you on fire. That's not God. Okay. His will, his hope, his desire is that people would repent of sin. He is willing that none should perish. His aim is restoration. In fact, if you want an example of that, we looked, we, we did, we looked at this a, a little while ago, Matthew 18, right? Uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 17 talks about church discipline. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. And the first thing to do is, if you notice sin in someone's life, go and have a private chat with them. You don't go public straight away, right? You, you go and just one-to-one, have a chat. Here's the concern I see. And, and do you remember in Matthew 18, when we did that sermon, what the goal was? It's that we would gain our brother. That's the goal. Now, if they still don't listen, bring a friend, bring a witness, go and talk again. It's serious. We've got to keep talking, right? They, their lob back over the net was not, not listening. Okay, so the ball's back in my court. Jesus says, take a friend. Let's, let's talk together. The goal is that you would gain your brother. They would listen and be one back to you. That's the goal, over and over and over. But still, if they don't listen, the ball comes back over, get lost. Okay, tell it to the church. But still, the goal is that you would gain your brother. It's, it punctuates that passage over and over, right? This is the goal of, of any conversation confronting sin. It's that this person would repent and come back. They would be restored to us. In fact, there's even a case in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul tells the church to dismiss someone from membership, to excommunicate them. It's this guy involved in horrendous public sin. They've all been tolerating it. He says, excommunicate this person, treat them as an unbeliever. Even the language he uses is hand them over to Satan. As if to say, you know, they're not part of God's kingdom anymore, they're part of Satan's kingdom. What's the goal though? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, here it is. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. How helpful. We don't come as judges ready to condemn. We come as friends ready to help and bring restoration and hopefully repentance that the person would turn around and be saved, whether that's at the level of the private conversation or all the way down to dismissing someone from membership. The hope the whole way along is restoration. Again, really helpful, I think, as we approach those hard conversations and decisions. One more principle. We will judge with Jesus, verse 26 to verse 27, as in, when Jesus returns, this is what we're going to be doing, friends, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian. You will stand with Jesus on Judgment Day. You've thought about that all that much? You've thought about that ever? <laughs> I was talking with uh, Andrew. We were studying this passage earlier in the week. Where's Andrew gone? Up the back. There he is. And we were both just going, yeah, we never think about this. 
How crazy is that? But, but have a look here. Um, in verse 25, he tells the Christians at Thyatira who aren't compromising in sin to keep faithful, right? Only hold fast what you have until you come. So keep, keep maturing in the faith. Don't tolerate sin. Confront it. Just keep doing those things. No other burden. Do that. Verse 26, he then quotes from Psalm chapter 2. Uh, that's what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about Jesus the Messiah. And, and it's sort of about him ruling the nations as a king. And I want you to listen in verse 26, this little twist that he gives to it, right? Psalm 2, all about Jesus and his rule. I want you to notice here who's ruling in verse 26 and 27. Take a look in your Bible. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. See, when, when Jesus comes, here's what he's going to do, right? He'll bring the nations together under his rod of judgment, right? And he'll break into pieces like pottery everything that's evil. Everything in his universe that's evil. Everything set against God and his good kingdom. He will preside in judgment over Satan, over the demons, and over everyone whose name is not written in the book of life. Everyone who has not responded to Jesus in faith and repentance. That is what Jesus will come to do, right? He will finally fully deal with evil in the world by consigning it to judgment. But do, do you notice here in verse 26, he will not be doing it alone. Do you notice? It is also the one who conquers who will be doing it alongside of him. The one who keeps his works until the very end. The one who keeps trusting in him alone for forgiveness of their sins. Who continually repents. Who keeps turning back over and over no matter how many times they get trapped in sin. They keep turning back to Jesus. That person will be standing with Jesus in judgment over all the evil in the world on judgment day. They will be standing there, as it were, at the edge of the lake of fire, seeing Satan and death and Hades and all of those who've been opposed to God and his work in the world going into eternal hell. And they will be standing there giving glory to God because he has finally dealt with evil. There is only good that remains. Friend, if you are in Christ, that's going to be you. You will be judging alongside Jesus. Now, think about yourself that way. Think eschatologically. That means think in view of the end. Okay? If you're in Christ, then right now, you might be thinking it's too awkward to deal with sin in the church. But then, at the end, when Jesus comes, you'll be raising a rod with him to end sin forever. Think about that. You might think right now that, that, you know, that you're trembling at the thought of a hard conversation, but when Jesus comes, you're going to receive authority with Jesus to consign the eternal fate of evil. Think about that. Think about yourself in view of that. You'll be in the presence of the morning star himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, in whom there is no sin, no evil, no darkness, only purity and holiness and goodness. You'll be in his presence. So how then could we tolerate sin today? How then could we put up with it in our midst? Knowing who you'll one day be and one day be standing with. I hope those principles help you. They help me. And I wonder as you look at them, 
if you're in that, that bigger group that's maybe not compromising in sin right now, but tempted to tolerate it, is there even one of those that really sticks out to you this morning and you go, that helps me have the hard conversation? Because I fully expect some of those conversations need to happen this morning. In any group of, of Christians, there is always things that we need to repent of and grow in. And we need the help of brothers and sisters to identify them and help us with them. Right? Fully expect that there'll be plenty of those conversations that always need to happen. And I pray that, that this might give you courage from God's word to go and do it. All right. We must neither compromise in sin nor tolerate sin. I want you just to think, which side of the dilemma are you on? Do you need courage to no longer compromise in sin? To repent, receive the forgiveness of Jesus, and give undivided worship to him? What do you need to do? Or do you need courage to no longer tolerate sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you? What's the hard conversation you need to have? What's the thing you need to grab hold of that helps you do it? Let's pray. Lord, we know that you give your word to us to challenge us uh, because we are not yet like Jesus. We pray, Lord, with these words this morning, you would make us ever more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Andrew's going to come up in a moment and share in communion with us, but uh, first I just want to ask, were there any questions, particularly around that stuff with sickness or anything else that's been raised in the sermon this morning? We don't have growth groups this week, so I just thought... Good chance to, to raise it for a moment. That's okay if not. I'll just I'll hold the silence for a moment. I'm okay with silence. I think I've said that before. I'll hold it. Have a think. All right. If you have any questions, any thoughts, come over and chat to me afterwards. More than happy to. Walking through. Andrew.